When the Confederate soldiers of McClaw's division emerged from the cover of the woods around 3.30 in the afternoon on July 2nd, they expected to march to the Emmitsburg Road, swing left, march towards Cemetery Hill, and fall upon the flank of the Army of the Potomac. Instead, they found the entire Union Third Corps in their front. General Dan Sickles had disobeyed orders, and advanced his corps about a mile west of where they were supposed to be, with the center of his line at the Shurfee Peach Orchard. The respective commanders of both armies were alarmed by this. For George Meade, it meant that his left flank was in danger of being overrun. For R.E. Lee, it meant that the attack, which had been in the works for most of the day, could no longer be executed as it had been conceived. All hell was about to break loose. Brigadier General Governor Kimball Warren was 33 years old on July 2, 1863. He'd been born in Cold Spring, New York, directly across the Hudson River from West Point. At 16, he received an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy and graduated there, second in his class of 1850. He spent the next decade in the Engineer Corps, mostly constructing railroads, bridges, and other infrastructural improvements. At the beginning of the Civil War, he was a mathematics professor at West Point, but he left to help recruit an infantry regiment with Abram Duryea that was mustered into service as the 5th New York Infantry, also known as Duryea's Zouaves. Initially second in command, he fought with the 5th New York at the Battle of Big Bethel, one of the first battles of the war, and afterward he was quickly promoted to command of the regiment, and then rose to brigade command the following year. After Joe Hooker took command of the Army of the Potomac, he named Warren his chief engineer. And when Meade replaced Hooker back on June 28th, the first officer that he summoned to meet with was Warren. Meade asked him to become his chief of staff, but Warren declined because he felt that General Butterfield was more equipped to serve in that role, and he himself would be better suited to continue on as chief engineer, at least until the crisis had subsided. General Warren rode from the Peach Orchard to the summit of Little Round Top, along with several of his staff officers, including 26-year-old Lieutenant Washington Roebling. Roebling was the son of the German-born engineer John Roebling, who at that time was already one of the most famous bridge designers in the United States. The elder Roebling would go on to design the Brooklyn Bridge after the Civil War. In 1864, Governor Warren's younger sister Emily visited him in Virginia and met Roebling. The two quickly fell in love and were married the following year. John Roebling died in 1869 from tetanus and Washington became chief engineer of the Brooklyn Bridge project. But shortly after, Roebling became terribly ill with decompression sickness, also known as the Benz, because of his frequent trips into the pressurized caissons underneath the East River. He was so debilitated that he was bedridden for years and dealt with the side effects for the rest of his life. His wife Emily had to take over the day-to-day -day operations of the project, and she quickly learned the ins and outs of bridge building and essentially led the construction of the Brooklyn Bridge until its completion in 1883. The Union Signal Corps were watching the movement of the Confederate troops. From his commanding view on the hill, Warren could see clearly the artillery of the First Corps, which blasted away at the Yankees in and around the Peach Orchard and the signal team on Little Round Top. Private Martin Alonzo Haynes, a soldier in the 2nd New Hampshire Infantry, wrote after the war, quote, Never in all its history was the regiment exposed to such a terrific artillery fire. The air was fairly alive with bursting shell and whistling canister. The leaves fell in showers from the peach trees, and the dirt was thrown up in little jets where the missiles were continually striking. A stream of wounded men was constantly pouring to the rear, some shells skimming along the ground and wounding as many as half a dozen men in their course. 
one shell struck square upon the cartridge box of Corporal Thomas Bignall of Company C, driving the cartridges into his body where they exploded one after the other, with a popping like that of a bunch of firecrackers." Unquote. After a Federal artillery shell burst in the woods on Warfield Ridge, General Warren could see the movement of Confederate infantry. Though it was unclear the exact size of the rebel force, it was clear that they were massing in the woods to the west for an attack. Sickles suddenly became aware of the awful spot he'd led his corps into. Because he'd advanced so far forward, the Union artillery on Cemetery Ridge couldn't be used for support for fear of hitting their own troops. His two divisions were stretched thin and were in desperate need of reinforcements. The Third Corps, including infantry and artillery, consisted of roughly 10,600 men. Hood and McClaw's divisions combined totaled more than 14,000, and that didn't even include the 5,000-man division of Richard Anderson. Sickles sent out multiple couriers to Meade, begging for help. At around 4.30, Meade met with General George Sykes and directed him to advance toward the large wheat field on the Rose Farm. Quote, Throw your whole corps to that point and hold it at all hazards. Unquote. Meade also instructed him to disregard any call for help from Sickles. He couldn't just leave Sickles hanging out to dry, but he wasn't going to let him dictate the course of events from now on. He was cut out of the chain of command and was only responsible for the troops of his own corps. Meade trusted the judgment of the professional officers of the 5th Corps more than the political generals that largely made up the 3rd. As General Sykes neared Little Round Top, he could see General Warren approaching. The engineer urged Sykes to send troops to the hill to protect the Federal left flank. He ordered the brigade of Colonel Strong Vincent to occupy the position. Vincent was a 26-year-old Pennsylvania native and Harvard-educated lawyer. He began the war as the lieutenant of a militia regiment, but was quickly promoted to lieutenant colonel and given command of the 83rd Pennsylvania Infantry. He rose again to lead his brigade just before the Battle of Chancellorsville. At the urging of General Warren, Vincent led his 1,300 soldiers up the eastern slope of Little Round Top and moved them into position on the western and southern side of the hill. Not long after, Warren spotted a familiar face. It was that of Colonel Patrick Henry O'Rourke, better known as Paddy. Paddy O'Rourke, like Vincent, was 26 years old. He was born in Ireland and immigrated with his family as a young man and settled in Rochester, New York. Because of his academic brilliance, he was awarded a scholarship to the University of Rochester, but was unable to attend due to the death of his father and became a marble cutter to support the family. But at the age of 20, he was given an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy, where one of his professors was none other than Governor Warren. He was part of the June 1861 class that graduated a year early due to the outbreak of the war. O'Rourke was first in his class. He commanded the 140th New York Infantry of General Stephen Weed's brigade. And as a quick aside, whenever I hear the name Stephen Weed, I'm reminded of one of my good friends, Stephen Bowles. Anyone listening to this who knows Stephen will know why. So shoutouts to Stephen, uh, who is probably not listening, and his lovely and talented wife Peppa, who, fun fact, is the person who sings the Excuse Me History theme song. Anyways, General Sickles had requested that General Weed send his brigade to support the 3rd Corps, and Weed was unaware that he was supposed to ignore his directives. But Warren managed to intercept Patty O'Rourke and told him to move up to Little Round Top. O'Rourke told him that he was under orders from Weed, but Warren told him, quote, Never mind that, Patty. Bring them up on the double quick. Don't stop for aligning. I will take the responsibility." Unquote. O'Rourke, led by Lieutenant Roebling, double-quick marched toward the hill. Warren then found a battery of artillery coming down the road. It was Battery D of the 5th U.S. Artillery, led by Lieutenant Charles Hazlitt, 24-year-old native of Ohio and son of abolitionists, who graduated from West Point in May of 1861. 
Warren felt the need to put guns on the hill, but added the caveat that it was, quote, no place for efficient artillery fire, unquote. Hazlitt emphatically responded, quote, never mind that. The sound of my guns will be encouraging to our troops and disheartening to the others. And my batteries of no use if this hill is lost, unquote. General Weed was found by one of Sykes' staff officers in order to bring the rest of the brigade back to Little Round Top. When the Confederate leaders of the First Corps discovered that Federal forces occupied ground that was supposedly unoccupied, quick decisions had to be made. The attack as it was designed was no longer possible. General Lafayette McClaws was still ordered to initiate the assault, but at the last moment he was ordered by Longstreet to wait. Longstreet had informed Lee of the situation. The Army commander was anxious for the attack to begin. So instead of McClaw's division advancing first, it was decided that General John Bell Hood's division would march behind McClaw's line into position on their right. Hopefully, by extending their line further to the south, they'd be able to move against the Union left flank. John Bell Hood was one of the rising stars within the Army of Northern Virginia. He'd just turned 32 and was considered to be a top-rate division commander, and likely to move up to corps command at some point. He'd received an appointment to the U.S. Military Academy from his uncle Richard French, who was at the time a congressman. He was nearly expelled from West Point because he received 196 out of a maximum 200 demerits in one year, but managed to graduate 44th of 52 in the class of 1853. He initially served in the infantry, but later became an officer in the 2nd U.S. Cavalry. For a time, his regimental commander was then-Colonel Robert E. Lee. After the surrender of Fort Sumter, he resigned from the Army, and though he was a native of Kentucky, he volunteered his service to his adopted state of Texas. After a short stint as a cavalry commander, he rose up to lead a Texas infantry regiment, and then a brigade made up of the only three regiments of Texans in the Army of Northern Virginia. Though at various times it also consisted of regiments from Arkansas or Georgia, it became known simply as the Texas Brigade. After the Peninsula Campaign, he was promoted to Division Command, and later that year to Major General. Hood's division consisted of four brigades. His old Texas Brigade was led by 48-year-old Brigadier General Jerome Bonaparte Robertson. Robertson was another Kentuckian turned Texan. He'd studied to be a doctor, but volunteered to fight in the Texas Revolution, and eventually settled there and became a local and state politician. Because of his love and devotion to his soldiers, he was nicknamed Aunt Polly. Two of Hood's brigades consisted entirely of Georgians, one led by Brigadier General George Thomas Anderson, often referred to by his nickname Tig, probably short for Tiger, a Mexican war veteran, antebellum cavalry officer, and militia leader in Georgia. The other was led by Brigadier General Henry L. Benning, also known as Old Rock. Benning was born into a wealthy slave-owning family and grew up on a plantation along the Georgia coast. He ultimately became a lawyer and got involved in politics. He was known as a fire-eating secessionist and ardent defender of the institution of slavery. A decade before the Civil War, he advocated for the creation of a Southern Republic. He felt a Confederacy was too weak, dedicated to defending chattel slavery. After the election of Lincoln in 1860, he was heavily involved in Georgia's convention that passed the Ordinance of Secession. The last of Hood's brigades was the Alabama Brigade, led by Brigadier General Evander MacIver Law. As discussed in the previous episode, Law's brigade had been ordered to stay behind when the rest of the division marched for Gettysburg on July 1st. They'd awoken at 3 a.m. on the morning of the 2nd and marched more than 20 miles to rejoin the division. Evander Law was a 26-year-old native of South Carolina and an 1856 graduate of the South Carolina Military Academy, known today as the Citadel. After teaching history at another school, he moved to Tuskegee, Alabama to start his own military prep school. 
As Hood's four brigades filed into position, he immediately recognized that the attack he was about to make was unwise. He later wrote, quote, I should have first to encounter and drive off this advanced line of battle, secondly at the base and along the slope of the mountain to confront immense boulders of stone so massed together as to form narrow openings which would break our ranks and cause the men to scatter whilst climbing up the rocky precipice." Unquote. Based on what his scouts had told him, he believed that the best course of action would be to turn the federal position by marching south and east around Big Round Top in order to avoid attacking the Yankee lines at Devil's Den and Little Round Top head-on. He sent a staff officer to ask permission from General Longstreet to perform this move, but Longstreet simply stated, quote, General Lee's orders are to attack up the Emmitsburg Road, unquote. Hood sent another staff officer and said that he, quote, feared nothing could be accomplished by such an attack, unquote, and implored his corps commander to allow him to turn Big Round Top. Longstreet again reiterated Lee's orders. Hood sent a third officer, but again Longstreet repeated the same message. General Lee's orders are to attack up the Emmitsburg Road. As Hood's attack was moving forward, he met in person with Longstreet, who agreed to hear him out. Hood again stated his reluctance to attack as directed, but Longstreet simply replied, quote, We must obey the orders of General Lee. Unquote. Why was Longstreet acting so obstinately? Deep down he agreed with Hood. He believed the attack they were about to make, even if it was successful in some way, would be fruitless. Casualties would certainly be high, but it was too late to change course now. Longstreet had advocated for a turning movement the day before and earlier that morning to no avail. To attempt a wide-sweeping move to the south would take time, possibly hours before they'd be able to begin their assault. The ground had not been properly scouted, and with no cavalry there was no way of knowing if there was an enemy force lurking somewhere behind the round tops. The wheels were already in motion, and the Confederates had wasted a lot of time already. It was now or never, and Lee wouldn't allow the latter. An attack had to be made now. Around 4.30, General Hood said to the soldiers of his former command, quote, Fix bayonets, my brave Texans. Forward and take those heights. Unquote. The goal was to advance across the Emmitsburg Road, wheel left, and drive in the Federal flank, wherever it was, but things fell apart almost at the start. As Hood was riding along the road near the Bushman farm, a Federal artillery shell from the Devil's Den came screaming overhead and exploded. A shell fragment struck him in the left arm. The wound was severe enough to knock him out of the fight just as it had begun. He was removed from the battlefield and immediately operated on by Dr. John T. Darby, who removed the shrapnel and bone fragments from his arm. Hood's mangled arm was never amputated, and though his recovery was slow, he would eventually gain some use of his left arm the following year. But he left Gettysburg in a carriage the following day, and eventually made it back to Richmond some three weeks later. So this is where John Bell Hood exits the Gettysburg Campaign, and the Army of Northern Virginia, as he'd end up going to the Western Theater later in the summer. Now without a commander, the lead brigades of Hood's division advanced eastward. But, as he'd predicted, their ranks were broken up and became disorganized largely because of the uneven terrain. General Robertson's leftmost regiments, the 3rd Arkansas and 1st Texas Infantry, advanced across the Emmitsburg Road into Rose's Woods toward Houck's Ridge and the Devil's Den. However, the two regiments on the right, the 4th and 5th Texas Infantry, gradually moved to the south and east and ended up heading for Little Round Top. Of Law's five Alabama regiments, those that were closest to Robertson's right, the 4th, 47th, and 15th Alabama, first marched due east up the slope of Big Round Top, then turned northeast and marched down the hill into the valley between the two round tops. 
The three Alabama regiments were followed by the 4th and 5th Texas. The 44th and 48th Alabama regiments were on the extreme right of the Confederate line. They initially advanced eastward in the same relative direction as the rest of the brigade, but similar to Robertson's Texans, gradually got separated. Once they'd crossed Plum Run, instead of continuing east up Big Round Top, they were ordered to turn north and march along the creek in the direction of the Devil's Den. The source of the confusion came largely from Hood's wounding and the fallout from that incident. As I've talked about numerous times already, when one officer goes down, another steps up to take his place. The next man in this case was Brigadier General Evander Law, but he didn't immediately learn of Hood's fate as he was monitoring the progress of his own brigade. Similarly, General Robertson only learned that Law was acting division commander when he sent couriers to find Hood to send reinforcements to support his brigade. Law's subordinates learned of his ascension at various times, but for some, it was after the fighting had already begun. According to some accounts, it seems that Law was not very active in controlling the division as a whole. The issue is complicated by the fact that Evander Law was relatively silent on the subject. He didn't write a post-battle report. The second issue was the broken nature of the terrain. Roadside fences, woods, hills and ridges, rock outcroppings, wheat fields, peach orchards, streams, farm buildings. All of these features gradually broke up the formation of the two brigades. The third issue was that as the Alabama Brigade advanced, they were confronted by Colonel Hiram Burdan's 2nd U.S. Sharpshooters. They sniped at the advancing rebels, which didn't result in a high number of casualties, but it slowed their march. The Sharpshooters fell back, some up Big Round Top and some toward Devil's Den, and several regiments pursued them instead of maintaining a steady course. This again contributed to the breakdown of unit cohesion, but it also exhausted the soldiers, especially Law's Brigade, which had already marched over 20 miles on only a few hours sleep. The last issue was that Robertson's brigade had been ordered to dress to Law's left wing. The 4th and 5th Texas tried to maintain contact with the Alabamians. The rest of the Texas brigade moved toward Devil's Den, while the Alabama brigade moved more in the direction of Little Round Top. Behind Law and Robertson were the brigades of Ty Anderson and Old Rock Benning. Their intended role in the fight wasn't entirely clear, but after the war, Evander Law wrote that they were to act as support for the respective brigade in their front. If that's the case, neither general seemed aware of exactly what they were supposed to do. Benning wasn't lined up directly behind Law's men, so when they ended up marching forward, they followed the two regiments of Robertson's brigade in the direction of the Devil's Den. Tyg Anderson was under the impression that he was to act as the reserve brigade, and wouldn't order his men into action until Robertson called for reinforcements. Now, the way I'm going to cover this battle is by sector. A lot of the action occurs simultaneously in different sectors, so to cover it completely chronologically would involve too much jumping back and forth. I'll do my best to keep this as cohesive and straightforward as possible. The fighting generally occurs from south to north. So we'll start first with Hood's assault on the Devil's Den and Little Round Top. After that will be McClaw's attack on the wheat field and the peach orchard, and then lastly Anderson's assault against Cemetery Ridge. The far left of the Third Corps line reached Houck's Ridge and the Devil's Den. Brigadier General J.H. Hobart Ward's brigade of Burney's division occupied the ridge. In their front was a valley that included Rose's Woods, the western branch of Plum Run, and a three-acre open field surrounded by a stone wall in the shape of an equilateral triangle. The only artillery in the area was the 4th Battery, New York Light Artillery, commanded by Captain James E. Smith. He took his four 10-pounder Parrot rifles and pulled them up to the crest of Houck's Ridge. The other two were left behind about 500 yards to the northeast and were deployed in the Plum Run Valley, facing southward in case the Confederates tried to outflank their position. General Henry Hunt rode in from the north to inspect Smith's position. 
He'd taken charge of the 3rd Corps artillery, as well as several batteries of his own artillery reserve, and placed most of them in and around the Peach Orchard, either on the Emmitsburg or Wheatfield Roads. Hunt found Captain Smith, who pointed to the west where Hood's division was advancing in the direction. Hunt surveyed the scene, and told Smith that he would probably lose his guns. Confederate batteries posted along Warfield Ridge unleashed a heavy barrage of exploding shells on Smith's position. The New Yorkers did their best to respond, but they were in an isolated spot. As the rebel infantry approached, the gunners were limited in what they could do. They couldn't angle their guns low enough to actually hit the Confederates because of the sloping terrain. The 3rd Arkansas, led by Colonel Van Manning, was the first regiment to strike the Federal line. They advanced through Rose's Woods, across Plum Run, straight for the center of War's Brigade. They easily drove back the Yankee skirmishers in their front, and with a rebel yell came upon the main line. As soon as the Arkansans had come into range, they were welcomed with a volley of muskets. They were taking fire from three Union regiments in their front. Colonel Manning attempted to shift his lines and extend them so they could meet the threat of the 20th Indiana and 99th Pennsylvania on their left, but the chaos of the battle made this difficult. The Union soldiers counterattacked the Arkansans and drove them back into the woods, but Manning was able to stabilize his lines and reform to attack again. With help from the 1st Texas on their right, they marched forward. The fighting was intense, and casualties quickly mounted. The 20th Indiana entered the fight with 268 soldiers. After 20 minutes, 146 had been killed or wounded. Its commander, Colonel John Wheeler, rode his horse behind the lines until a miniball struck him in the head. He died instantly. Lieutenant Colonel William Taylor filled in, but within minutes he was wounded. Captain Erasmus Gilbreth took command, but he quickly realized they were running out of ammunition. He requested more from one of General Ward's staff aides, but none was available. The Hoosiers held their position until they'd nearly completely run out of cartridges, and were forced to fall back. The Arkansans were taking heavy fire from their front, but also their left flank. Colonel Regis de Trobriand's brigade held the southern edge of the wheat field and the Stony Hill. The 17th Maine Infantry posted up behind a stone wall and harassed the Confederate left in the woods. The 1st Texas Infantry came in hot on the right of Manning's Arkansans. They were met with heavy fire from the New York Infantry and Artillery at the crest of the ridge and were forced to halt and return fire. Some took cover along the western side of the triangular stone wall. Then from the south arrived the 44th and the 48th Alabama regiments. They'd come up from Big Round Top along Plum Run until they got within 100 yards of Devil's Den. 44th was fired upon by skirmishers of the 4th Maine Infantry. They were scattered amongst the rocks of the southern portion of the Devil's Den. The Alabamians halted and returned fire. On their right, the 48th advanced toward the rocks. The Mainers fired six volleys before the rebels stopped to return fire. Colonel James Sheffield later said that he got within 20 paces of the Federal line. His right was afforded the cover of the woods, but his left was caught in an open area of the Plum Run Valley that would later become known as the Slaughter Pen. Sheffield's soldiers were torn apart by infantry in their front, and Smith's two rifled guns to the north. They were forced to fall back into the woods at the foot of Big Round Top, but the right wing was able to push the Mainers back to a higher position at Devil's Den. The pressure against the Federal line was growing. The Texans were advancing again. One notable incident involved Private Wilson Barbie, one of General Hood's couriers whose horse had been shot out from underneath him. Lieutenant Colonel William Work of the 1st Texas described Barbie's actions in his post-battle report. Quote, Private Barbie, though a mounted courier, acting for Major General Hood, entered the ranks of his company and fought through the engagement. At one time, he mounted a rock upon the highest pinnacle of the hill, and there, exposed to a raking deadly fire from artillery and musketry, stood until he had fired 25 shots, when he received a mini-ball wound in the right thigh and fell." Unquote. 
Despite the wound, Barbie climbed the rock again and continued to fire at the Union infantry. Other wounded soldiers reloaded their muskets and handed them up to him. Barbie was wounded two more times before the soldiers around him refused to help him get up there again. The Texans charged forward with a, quote, fierce yell, unquote, but were met with a, quote, fiercer crash of riflery, unquote. Their charge came to a halt, but shortly after surged forward again. Captain Smith shouted at his artillerymen, quote, give them shell, give them shot, damn them, give them anything, unquote. The cannons fired round after round, but Smith's battery was made up of rifled guns, which were effective at long to medium distances, but far less so at short range. Colonel Augustus Van Horn Ellis stood with his arms crossed on the ridge behind his regiment, the 124th New York, as the Texans pressed against their position. The 124th was a relatively young regiment, having been mustered into service in September of 1862. Their only significant exposure to combat came at Chancellorsville, less than two months prior. It was at that battle that the regiment lost 40% of its strength. Now at Devil's Den, only 238 officers and soldiers held their sector of the line. Colonel Ellis had no military experience prior to the Civil War. He was a native New Yorker and attended Columbia University, where he studied law. After a brief stint as a lawyer, he moved to California, where he bounced around jobs until he became a ship captain. During his seafaring days, he allegedly traveled to Hawaii, then an independent kingdom. He later claimed that Kamehameha III offered him the role of head of the Hawaiian Navy, which Ellis turned down when he learned that there were no warships. He was back in New York when the Civil War began. After seeing some action earlier in the war, he spent most of 1861 and early 1862 training new recruits. Later that year, he was promoted to colonel and given command of the newly formed 124th New York. Since they hailed from Orange County, he nicknamed them his Orange Blossoms. Just before the fighting began on July 2nd, he told them, quote, Let the little girls of Old Orange hear a good report of this day's work, unquote. Captain Charles Wagan, a company commander in the 124th, described the situation. Quote, when the enemy's advance line drew near the base of the hill we were on, it appeared to almost halt for a minute, and then started rapidly forward again, and with fierce yells began ascending the slope, and there was heard an opening crash of riflery all along our front, which was the death knell of hundreds. Yet on, on they came, but very slowly, only a few feet at a time. Now, Major James Cromwell hurries to Colonel Ellis, who stands behind the color company, and asks him to order a charge. But the colonel shakes his head and tells the major to go back to his place again. Now the enemy has been brought to a stand, but he is only a few rods away. Again, Cromwell walks toward Ellis. This time, he's accompanied by Adjutant Ramsdell. Once more, he requests the colonel to charge, and again, told to go back to the left of the regiment. Yet a moment later, their horses are brought up and they mount. Unquote. Captain, Willie, <laughs> Captain William Silliman, which is a pretty goofy name, protested this. Officers on horseback would be prime targets. Wagant continued, quote, The Manger's only reply is, The men must see us today. And then he rides slowly to and wheels his horse about in the rear of the center of the left wing, where with drawn sword and eyes fixed on the colonel, he impatiently awaits his superior's pleasure. Quote. Mounted on a gray horse, Ellis gave Cromwell the signal, and he shouted the order to charge. Cromwell's horse galloped forward, the soldiers of the regiment stormed behind him with bayonets drawn. Captain Wagant recalled, quote, Roaring cannon, crashing rifles, screeching shots, bursting shells, hissing bullets. Cheers, shouts, shrieks, and groans were the notes of the song of death which greeted the grim reaper. 
Unquote. Major Cromwell emerged from a cloud of smoke with his saber waving in the air until he was shot in the chest and tumbled off his horse. Colonel Ellis was following behind the line and saw Cromwell fall. He shouted to the Orange Blossoms, quote, My God, my God, men, your major's down. Save him, save him. Unquote. Their charge continued. The Texans were driven back. Ellis continued forward on his horse until he met the same fate as Cromwell. A Confederate bullet struck him in the forehead, and he was killed instantly. His second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel Francis Cummins, was also wounded in the thigh by shrapnel from an artillery shell. Despite their bravery and initial success, the tide was about to turn in favor of the Confederates. Dozens of the New Yorkers fell to a musket volley. It wasn't the Texans, though. General Benning's Georgians had entered the fight. General Ward feared that his brigade was on the verge of collapse. He shifted the 99th Pennsylvania from the right of the line to the left to bolster their position above Devil's Den. He sent couriers to General Burney, asking for reinforcements. Burney pried away one of de Trobriand's regiments, the 40th New York, and the 6th New Jersey Infantry of Burling's Brigade. The two Alabama regiments renewed their attack against the 4th Maine at the southern end of Devil's Den, but they made little headway. The den itself was impossible for regiments to march through and maintain formation, so most of the fighting there was limited to skirmishers and sharpshooters. It was on the ridge above the Devil's Den, and the open area to the east, the Slaughter Pen, where the fiercest fighting occurred. General Robertson had called back for reinforcements, but the gallant hood of Texas had already been removed from the field, and General Law could not be found. Robertson sent pleas directly to Ty Anderson to join the fight, who took it upon himself to act without orders. His Georgia Brigade advanced on the left of the 3rd Arkansas Infantry. Earlier, when units were shifted to protect the Federal left, it weakened the right of Ward's line, and created a gap between his brigade and that of Colonel de Trobriand. Anderson's five regiments wheeled left and smashed into de Trobriand's regiments, while Robertson, Benning, and Law's men all concentrated on the final push for Houck's Ridge and the Devil's Den. Artillery shells rained down from all directions. Dead and dying soldiers covered the ground. Captain Smith's battery was in danger of being captured. It was a mark of shame to lose your guns to the enemy, but there was little he could do at that point. Confederate sharpshooters sniped at his battery from behind the rocks in the den. Smith asked Captain Wagant, now in command of the 124th New York, for help. Quote, For God's sake, men, don't let them take my guns away from me. Unquote. Not long after, the Texans of the ragged old 1st Infantry Regiment, along with the 15th Georgia, drove the remnants of the 124th New York and the rest of Ward's brigade from the crest of the ridge. Smith's gunners were forced to abandon all but one of the Parrot rifles. Private John C. Stinson of the 1st Texas climbed onto one of the captured guns and shouted victory. Union sharpshooters concentrated their fire on the abandoned battery. Private E.P. Derrick took cover behind a rock, but was struck in the head by a bullet and fell dead. Captain George Todd, who was crouched next to him, was splattered with his blood and brain matter. Corporal William A. Duvall and Private James M. Polk attempted to turn one of the guns in order to fire it at the Yankee soldiers, but Duvall was killed by another Union bullet and Polk couldn't move the gun alone. As more rebel soldiers reached Smith's battery, they were met by artillery shells from either Little Round Top, the Wheat Field, or possibly friendly fire from Warfield Ridge. One exploded and a piece of shrapnel tore a large hole through the chest of an unnamed soldier. He staggered for a few moments, until he collapsed, and died a few minutes later. Colonel Elijah Walker ordered his main infantrymen back up the ridge. When his regiment was organized, he ordered them to fix bayonets to the ends of their muskets. Walker later recalled, quote, I shall never forget the click that was made by the fixing of bayonets. It was as one. Unquote. 
Walker's horse was shot out from under him, which injured his foot when he hit the ground. They were joined in their counterattack by the 99th Pennsylvania. Its commander, Major John W. Moore, maneuvered his regiment into position on Walker's left and shouted, Up and charge! The soldiers cried, Pennsylvania and our homes, and drove off the attacking Confederates from the ridge. But by that time, the weight of four Confederate brigades was too much for the Confederates to continue to hold the Devil's Den area. After at least an hour of fighting, the Georgians of Benning's brigade drove off the Mainers and Pennsylvanians for the last time. The New Yorkers and Hoosiers to their right had already fallen back, and there was no real tactical advantage to holding the position any longer. Captain James Casey of the 99th Pennsylvania went about destroying abandoned muskets on the ground so they could not be used by the enemy. Major Moore called on him to fall back with them. Casey picked up a loaded musket in order to fire off one last shot. After he fired, a bullet hit him. Moore and Sergeant Robert Graham attempted to carry him off the field, but with the Confederates closing in on them, Casey urged them to leave him behind. Moore and Graham reluctantly left him on the ridge. His body was never found. Later, the regimental leaders on either side boasted of the intensity of the battle and the medal of their respective commands. Colonel Walker claimed that the 4th Maine's regimental flag was riddled with 32 bullet holes, two shell fragments, and the flagstaff was broken by shrapnel. Lieutenant Colonel James Waddell said that the flag of the 20th Georgia had 87 holes, 38 from mini balls, and 49 from artillery shrapnel. The withdrawal of Ward's brigade was covered by the now-arrived 40th New York Infantry. The 40th had an odd beginning. Because New York had already maxed out the number of regiments that could be accepted by the federal government in early 1861, the regiment was sponsored by Mozart Hall. Mozart Hall was the meeting place for a faction of the New York democracy that was opposed to the powerful Tammany Hall machine. They raised funds to furnish the regiment, and the 40th became known as the Mozart Regiment. They were also joined by several excess companies of soldiers from Massachusetts and Pennsylvania. The Mozart Regiment fought in every major engagement of the Eastern Theater, except for the First Battle of Bull Run. Their numbers were greatly reduced by attrition, but they were bolstered by the addition of soldiers from five other New York regiments that had taken so many casualties that they couldn't continue to operate as independent regiments. Colonel Thomas W. Egan led the 40th into the Plum Run Valley and counterattacked the Georgians and Alabamians. Captain Smith had returned to the two rifled guns of his battery that he left behind. He ordered them to fire on the Confederates in the valley until the New Yorkers charged in. The 2nd and 17th Georgia took heavy casualties in the slaughter pen before falling back to the safety of the rocks in the den. They fired at the 40th as they charged again and again. Colonel Wesley C. Hodges of the 17th Georgia alleged that they attacked his position seven times before they retreated. Captain Smith said they were, quote, fighting like tigers, unquote. A second regiment, the 6th New Jersey, arrived to aid the 40th. They poured in several volleys of musket fire to give the New Yorkers time to withdraw from the action. The 40th reformed, but was driven off once and for all by Benning's and Robertson's men. By 6 p.m., Houck's Ridge was in rebel hands. Ward's brigade had held out against a force more than twice its size for at least an hour of nearly constant close-quarters fighting. Total casualties were estimated to be at least 800. Of the eight regimental commanders involved in the fighting, two were killed and four were wounded. Five seconds in command were also wounded, one of whom would later die. Hood's division captured the ridge after some of the fiercest fighting of the war. Total casualties for the Federals were estimated to be at least 800. Of the roughly 5,500 soldiers involved in the attack, nearly 1,500 were wounded or killed, and another 300 were captured or missing. Now let's shift over to the east, to Little Round Top.
at basically the same time that the 3rd Arkansas and the 1st Texas hit Ward's brigade on Houck's Ridge, the assault on Little Round Top was beginning. Colonel Strong Vincent's brigade had just gotten into position only a few minutes before the Texans and Alabamians arrived. The order of the regiments in Vincent's command from right to left were the 16th Michigan, the 44th New York, the 83rd Pennsylvania, and the 20th Maine. The 20th was commanded by a 34-year-old native of Brewster, Maine, Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain. Chamberlain's father envisioned a military career for his son, but he ultimately spent most of his antebellum days in academia. He attended Bowdoin College, which is one of the colleges that Meadow Soprano was supposed to visit in the episode of The Sopranos, College. And if you're keeping track, I believe that's the seventh reference to The Sopranos that I've made on this series so far. Anyway, he graduated from Bowdoin in 1852, and then the Bangor Theological Seminary in 1855. Bangor, I hardly know her. He returned to Bowdoin as a professor, where he taught numerous subjects over the years. When the war broke out, he intensely supported the Union, but was initially dissuaded from volunteering to fight. In 1862, under the guise of a temporary leave of absence, and unbeknownst to the administration of Bowdoin and his wife, he was commissioned as a lieutenant colonel of the 20th Maine Regiment. He was second in command to then-Colonel Adelbert Ames, who you might recall commanded a brigade during the fight north of Gettysburg on July 1st, and was now acting division commander of Barlow's division. Chamberlain and the 20th Maine didn't see action until the Battle of Fredericksburg. They were one of the last waves in the assault on the Confederate position at Marie's Heights, and spent the night lying on the frozen battlefield, huddled behind piled-up corpses used for protection against Confederate sharpshooters. The regiment missed action at Chancellorsville due to an outbreak of smallpox. After Ames left to join General Meade's staff, Chamberlain succeeded him and was promoted to colonel. Sometime after 4.30 on July 2nd, his regiment held the far left wing of Vincent's line, at the end of the lower spur of Little Round Top. His position was vulnerable, as it overlooked the saddle between the two round tops, which was less steep and rocky than the western part of the hill. Five Confederate regiments advanced over Big Round Top and then down into the saddle toward Little Round Top. They were the 4th and 5th Texas and the 4th, 15th, and 47th Alabama regiments. They'd been directed not to march over the summit of the hill, but Berdan's sharpshooters drew them that way. Once they reached the top, the Alabamians took a moment to rest, but they were urged on by one of Law's staff officers to attack. Colonel William C. Oates commanded the rightmost regiment, the 15th Alabama. Oates was 27 years old and a native of Alabama. Unlike most Confederate officers, he came from a rather humble background. His father had been a poor yeoman farmer. Oates' childhood is usually described as rough, and he ran away from home twice, the first time after a fight with his father, and the second time after he fought with another man that possibly ended in his death. Oates drifted around the South for a few years, working as a laborer or a painter, and probably gambling a lot. Eventually, he settled down and became a teacher. While teaching, he taught himself the law by reading legal books, until he was able to pass the bar and then became a lawyer. He joined the 15th Alabama Infantry in the summer of 1861 and was elected captain. Oates and the 15th saw action at every battle in the Eastern Theater except for First Bull Run in Chancellorsville. In the spring of 1863, he was promoted to colonel and given command of the regiment. The mixed Texas and Alabama regiments advanced down the slope of Big Round Top and met the skirmishers of Vincent's Brigade. They easily drove them back scrambling up the steep rocky slope of Little Round Top. Val Giles, a 21-year-old private serving in the 4th Texas, described the scene in his post-war memoirs. Quote, Confusion reigned everywhere. Nearly all our field officers were gone. The side of the mountain was heavily timbered and covered with great boulders that had tumbled from the cliffs above years before. 
Every tree, rock, and stump that gave any protection from the rain of many balls that were poured down upon us from the crest above us was soon appropriated. John Griffith and myself preempted a moss-covered old boulder, about the size of a 500-pound cotton bale." Unquote. The 4th and 5th Texas and 4th Alabama advanced against the center and right of Vincent's brigade, but they were stopped by intense musket fire in the terrain. They halted, and as Giles just described, took cover behind boulders down in the lower part of the hill. Colonel Robert M. Powell, commander of the 5th Texas, was badly wounded almost as soon as the fight had begun. His second-in-command, Lieutenant Colonel King Bryan, went looking for him. But as soon as Bryan found Powell, he too was struck by a Union bullet, and blood so profusely that he had to be removed from the field. Private Giles wrote, quote, By this time, order and discipline were gone. Every fellow was his own general. Private soldiers gave commands as loud as the officers. Nobody paid any attention to either. To add to this confusion, our artillery on the hill to our rear was cutting its fuse too short. Their shells were bursting behind us, in the treetops, over our heads, and all around us. Nothing demoralizes troops quicker than to be fired into by their friends. I saw it occur twice during the war. The first time we ran, but at Gettysburg, we couldn't." Unquote. The first assault against the center and right of Vincent's brigade sputtered out, and the soldiers fell back and took cover wherever they could. There was little coordination between the Confederate regiments and their attacks against Vincent's brigade. Essentially, the three regiments on the left and the two on the right acted independently of each other. No brigade commander was present to direct the action, as Robertson was at Devil's Den and Law was now acting division commander. It became a fight of regiment versus regiment. Colonel Oates commanded both his own 15th Alabama as well as the 47th on their left. Its commander, Lieutenant Colonel Michael Bulger, was wounded earlier in the action. Oates recounted after the war, quote, Our foes, who had so suddenly and mysteriously disappeared from Round Top, had evidently fallen back to a second line behind this ledge. And now, unexpectedly to us, this double line poured into us the most destructive fire I ever saw. Our line halted, but it did not break. As men fell, their comrades closed the gap, returning the fire most spiritedly. I soon discovered that the left of the 47th Alabama was disconnected, I know not how far, from the right of the 4th Alabama, and consequently the 47th was outflanked on its left, and its men were being mowed down like grain before the scythe." Unquote. They doggedly attacked Chamberlain's 20th Maine multiple times. The 47th made little progress initially. As Oates described, when the Texans and Alabamians on their left fell back, they were exposed to flanking fire from the 83rd Pennsylvania and 44th New York. Oates ordered his troops to hit the manors on their flank with the hope that they could envelop their position, drive up the hill, and sweep Vincent's brigade off of it. But Chamberlain's men held their ground against wave after wave of rebel advances on their position. The Alabamians got close, but each time they were stopped and forced to fall back and reform. Oates rallied them and shouted, quote, Forward, men, to the ledge! Unquote. With bayonets drawn and muskets leveled, they stormed the Federal left, and initially succeeded in pushing them back up the hill, but then the 20th rallied, counterattacked, and forced the rebels to fall back once more. Oates recalled, quote, We drove the Federals from their strong defensive position. Five times they rallied and charged us, twice coming so near that some of my men had to use the bayonet. But vain was their effort. It was our time now to deal death and destruction to a gallant foe, and the account was speedily settled with a large balance in our favor, but the state of things was not to continue. The long blue lines of Federal infantry were coming down on my right and closing in on my rear." Unquote. Casualties were mounting. Next to Colonel Oates was a young private named William Holloway. 
Gunsmoke filled the air and made it nearly impossible to see anything more than a few yards away. Holloway told Oates, quote, Colonel, I can't see them, unquote. Oates told him to duck down below the smoke, but as soon as he crouched down, a bullet hit him in the head and killed him instantly. Captain Henry Brainerd, one of the 15th Company commanders, was then killed. Oates's own brother, Lieutenant John Oates, succeeded him, but died with eight bullet wounds in his body. It was rough going for the Confederates, but the 20th Maine was in a real predicament as well. They were outnumbered and running low on ammo. Chamberlain sent couriers back to Vincent to see if more could be procured. The Confederates had renewed their attack on Vincent's center and right, but their second attack made no significant headway. After falling back to reform, they made one last push. The three regiments were joined by the 48th Alabama after the fighting at Devil's Den had died down. In their third assault of the afternoon, they finally began to make some progress against Vincent's right wing. The 16th Michigan was the smallest regiment of his brigade, and two of its companies had been sent to the east to fill the gap between Devil's Den and Little Round Top in case there was a breakthrough. Only about 150 Michigan soldiers were on the hill at the start of the battle. Now confronted by both the 4th Texas and the 48th Alabama, the Michiganders' line began to waver and was on the verge of breaking. Because of a miscommunication, some of the soldiers began to fall back up the hill. Vincent's right was in danger of being outflanked. He had been quite active during the battle, riding back and forth behind the lines and responding to crises as they arose. He ordered the 44th New York to concentrate their fire to their right and help out the 16th Michigan. Vincent himself hurried over to their lines to rally the soldiers. He climbed up on a boulder, waved his riding crop in the air, and shouted to the soldiers, quote, Don't give an inch! Unquote. Moments later, a bullet hit him in the groin, and he went down. Strong Vincent was carried off the battlefield to the farmhouse of George Weikert. A few days earlier, when Vincent's brigade crossed the Mason-Dixon line into Pennsylvania, he remarked to Lieutenant John Clark, quote, what death more glorious can any man desire than to die on the soil of old Pennsylvania, fighting for that flag?" Unquote. Strong Vincent died at the Weikert House five days later on July 7, 1863. His pregnant wife, Elizabeth, gave birth to a daughter two months later, though she would die in infancy. Elizabeth Vincent never remarried. Colonel James Rice, commander of the 44th New York, stepped up to take his place, but there was little he could do on his own to stop the Confederate tide. But at one of those dramatic moments, dramatic to the point where it almost feels scripted, reinforcements arrived. It was Colonel Patty O'Rourke in the 140th New York. Dressed in their Zouave uniforms that included baggy blue trousers, red jackets, and red fezes, O'Rourke and his regiment charged into the fray. O'Rourke yelled, quote, Down this way, boys, unquote. And they rushed in, disorganized, on the right of the 16th Michigan. When they were in line, he cried out, quote, Here they are, men. Commence firing, unquote. The pendulum had swum back the other way. 500 New York Zouaves poured in several volleys of musket fire and broke the momentum of the rebel attack after only a few minutes of fighting. Before they retreated, one Confederate soldier spotted Patty O'Rourke and fired off a round that struck him in the neck and killed him. General Stephen Weed led the rest of his brigade in the footsteps of the 140th, but by the time they arrived on the scene, the battle on the western slope of Little Round Top was virtually over. Weed was with Captain Augustus Pearl Martin, the commander of the 5th Corps Artillery Brigade. Martin was in the process of getting more batteries deployed. Lieutenant Charles Hazlitt's battery was the only one on the hill. Little Round Top, though a formidable defensive position, was not suited for the placement of artillery, though. It was too rocky and wooded. Getting Hazlitt's six guns up there had been quite a feat. Even when they were in place, they could do little to actually stop the oncoming Confederate attackers. Similar to Smith's battery at Devil's Den, Hazlitt's guns couldn't be depressed low enough to actually hit the rebels in their front. 
Additionally, his battery was a prime target for Confederate sharpshooters. When General Weed arrived on the scene, he rode over to where Hazlitt's guns were posted. He remarked to Captain Martin, quote, Martin, I would rather die on this spot than see those rascals gain one inch of ground, unquote. A few moments later, Martin rode off to talk to General George Sykes, who was monitoring the situation of the rest of the Fifth Corps in the valley below. As Martin was riding away, he turned around to see General Weed fall forward. Several nearby officers rushed to his side. He'd likely been struck in the spinal cord by a mini-ball, as he was paralyzed from the shoulders down. Lieutenant Benjamin Rittenhouse, one of Hazlitt's section commanders, kneeled next to him. Weed said to Rittenhouse, quote, I'm cut in two. I want to see Hazlitt, unquote. Rittenhouse summoned the battery commander, who Weed pulled in close. Rittenhouse claimed that Weed spoke to Hazlitt about some unfinished debts that he owed, and then whispered something private to him that no one else could hear. Hazlitt then fell over. A bullet had struck him in the head. Rittenhouse tried to get his attention, but he was unresponsive. Both were carried off the field to aid stations. Lieutenant William Crinnell, one of Weed's staff officers, said, quote, General, I hope you're not so very badly hurt, unquote. Weed responded, quote, I am as dead a man as Julius Caesar, unquote. General Stephen Weed and Lieutenant Charles Hazlitt both died later that day. While the fighting on the right had died down, Chamberlain's 20th Maine was still being pressed hard by Oates' Alabamians. The Confederates reformed their lines and maneuvered farther to the east in order to strike the flank of the Union line. If the Mainers were in a straight line, they wouldn't have been able to respond to this attack. But Chamberlain smartly ordered the line be refused, meaning it would be bent backward to form a right angle. When the next rebel wave came, they were able to hold them off again, but the belt was tightening. Each attack seemed to get closer to breaking them. A third of the regiment was dead or wounded, and ammunition was virtually gone. The center of the line was so thin that there was just a single rank of soldiers, with no one in reserve. One soldier who was credited with rallying the men around him was Sergeant Andrew Tozier. Tozier had only joined the 20th Maine a few weeks prior. He was originally a soldier in the 2nd Maine Infantry Regiment, which had been greatly reduced by casualties and expiring enlistments earlier in the spring. Because it was considered too small to be an independent regiment, the soldiers with one year left on their enlistment were transferred under protest to the 20th Maine. To build unit cohesion and develop an esprit de corps, Chamberlain named Sergeant Tozier the color bearer of the regiment, which as I discussed a couple of episodes back, was considered a real honor. After the war, Colonel Chamberlain recalled, quote, In the very deepest of the struggle, while our shattered line had pressed the enemy well below their first point of contact, and the struggle to regain it was fierce, I saw through a sudden rift, in the thick smoke, our color standing alone. I first thought some optical illusion imposed upon me, but as forms emerged through the drifting smoke, the truth came to view. The crossfire had cut keenly. The center had been almost shot away. Only two of the color guard had been left, and they fighting to fill the whole space. And in the center, wreathed in battle smoke, stood the color sergeant, Andrew Tozier, his color staff planted in the ground at his side, the upper part clasped in his elbow, so holding the flag upright, with musket and cartridges seized from fallen comrade at his side, he was defending his sacred trust in the manner of the songs of chivalry." Unquote. Colonel Chamberlain was so inspired by his bravery under fire that he ordered Lieutenant Tom Chamberlain, his younger brother, to take a few soldiers and defend Tozier's position at the center of the line. Chamberlain was under the impression that the Alabamians were ready to attack again, and his regiment might not hold. But in reality, the Confederates had probably reached their limit too. Law's brigade had marched more than any other to reach Gettysburg that day, and when they arrived, they were unable to procure water. 
Oates wrote after the war that two of his company commanders suggested that they retreat. In addition to being exhausted, there was an unknown federal force out on their right. It was Company B of the 20th Maine, along with some members of the 2nd Sharpshooters. Before the fighting began, Chamberlain had ordered Captain Walter G. Murill to take his company about a hundred or so yards to the left in order to watch for any wide-sweeping flanking movements the Confederates might attempt. They took position behind a stone wall, so their true numbers were obscured, but it seems like the Alabamians were at least aware of their presence. Oates told his officers, quote, Return to your companies. We will sell out as dearly as possible, unquote. But as he took in the situation, he realized that retreat was probably the best option at that point. What happened next is the subject of great debate amongst the people who were there and historians in the century and a half since. This is one of Chamberlain's accounts. Quote, Now too, our fire was slackening. Our last rounds of shot had been fired. What I had sent for could not get to us. I saw the faces of my men, one after another, when they had fired their last cartridge, turn anxiously toward mine for a moment, and then square to the front again. To the front for them lay death, to the rear what they would die to save. My thought was running deep. I was combining the elements of a forlorn hope, and had just communicated this to Captain Spear of the wheeling flank, on which the initiative was to fall. Just then, so will a little incident fleck a brooding cloud of doom with a tent of human tenderness, Brave, warm-hearted Lieutenant Melcher of the Color Company, whose captain and nearly half his men were down, came up and asked if he might take his company and go forward, and pick up one or two of his men left wounded on the field, and bring them in before the enemy got too near. This would be a most hazardous move in itself, and in this desperate moment we could not break our line, but I admired him. With a glance he understood. I answered, Yes sir, in a moment. I am about to order a charge. Unquote. Chamberlain's accounts tended to change after the war. It was a little bit different in each version, sometimes a little more grandiose as time went along. In another version, he claimed to have said, quote, Yes, sir, take your place with your company. I am about to order a right wheel forward of the whole regiment, unquote. Essentially, he's saying the same thing as he did before, but a right wheel forward is a tad more detailed than simply a charge. Chamberlain continued, quote, Not a moment was to be lost. Five minutes more of such a defensive, and the last roll call would sound for us. Desperate as the chances were, there was nothing for it but to take the offensive. I stepped to the colors. The men turned towards me. One word was enough. Bayonet! It caught like fire, and swept along the ranks. Unquote. With little hesitation, the Mainers, quote, ran like fire along the line, from man to man, and rose into a shout with which they sprang forward upon the enemy now not 30 yards away, unquote. Because the left wing of the regiment had been refused, Captain Ellis Spear smartly led them in a right-wheel maneuver down the hill, sometimes described like a door being swung closed. As they charged, they swept the Alabamians down the hill, quote, like a reaper cutting down the disconcerted foe, unquote. But several others contradict some of Chamberlain's claims, the most notable being his second-in-command, Captain Ellis Spear, Spear actually knew Chamberlain from before the war, as he was a student at Bowdoin College when Chamberlain was a professor there. After the war, he alleged that he never received orders from Chamberlain to make the charge. Chamberlain, in basically every account, maintained that he did. I think the most likely scenario is that Chamberlain sent a courier with instructions, but the man never found Spear. Spear claimed that the reason he ordered his company forward was because he saw Lieutenant Melcher advancing with Sergeant Tozier and the regimental colors. Others also allege that it was Melcher who initiated the attack, which Chamberlain denied. 
While it is true that he went forward to carry the wounded members of the regiment to safety, no one who was present backs the claim that he came up with the idea to charge. Again, Chamberlain's version of events changed over the years. It didn't help that an account he wrote for William Randolph Hearst's magazine was heavily embellished by Hearst's editors. But in his post-battle report that he wrote a few weeks later, he states that, quote, I ordered the bayonet. That word was enough, unquote. To complicate matters, Colonel Oates claimed that the charge did not break his regiment because they were already in the process of retreating. He told Sergeant Major Norris to inform the company commanders that they should not make an orderly retreat and said they should sprint back to Big Round Top where they would reform in a safer position. Quote, I ordered a retreat. When the signal was given, we ran like a herd of wild cattle. Unquote. Oates didn't write a post-battle report, and most of these allegations were made after the war, so it's possible that he was just trying to save face. Kind of like a, you can't fire me because I quit moment. But considering how many assaults the Alabamians had made, and how little they or the rest of the brigade had accomplished on Little Round Top, it's certainly not out of the question that Oates had ordered the retreat at basically the same time Chamberlain ordered the charge. Some of the rebel soldiers tried to take cover behind the stone wall on their right, but they were surprised by Company B, which they thought was an entirely new Yankee regiment. They rose up from behind the wall and unleashed a devastating volley of musket fire. If the Alabamians had considered resisting the Union attack, they disregarded that notion at that point. Colonel Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain, with his sword in the air and limping from a wound that he received in his foot during the heat of the action, continued down into the saddle between the two round tops. His soldiers surged forward at their own volition and pursued the Confederates a little way up Big Round Top. Their formation had come apart, and the officers of the 20th ordered them to halt and reform, which Chamberlain said was difficult because they were, quote, on the road to Richmond. Unquote. The survivors of the 15th and 47th Alabama scrambled up to higher ground. The twin charges of O'Rourke's 140th New York and Chamberlain's 20th Maine permanently broke the momentum of the rebel assaults. On the left, the soldiers of the Texas Brigade finally pulled back as well. Those who were unable to retreat surrendered. Chamberlain claimed that his regiment captured more than 400 Confederate soldiers, which is certainly an exaggeration. Colonel James Rice, commander of the 44th New York and acting brigade commander, said that the brigade as a whole captured 500 soldiers, but the actual number is probably closer to 200 or so. Regardless, casualties were high for the Confederates on Little Round Top. In addition to the captured soldiers, nearly 300 were killed in action, and more than 800 were wounded. Both commanders of the two Texas regiments were wounded. Colonel Powell, who was wounded early in the fighting, was captured. Lieutenant Colonel Bulger of the 47th Alabama was also wounded and captured. Colonel Oates passed out from heat exhaustion on the slopes of Big Round Top and likely would have been captured had his soldiers not carried him off the field. Federal casualties were about half the number of the rebels. Casualties amongst the officers in Vincent's brigade were surprisingly low. Aside from Vincent himself, no high-ranking officer in his brigade was killed. Chamberlain was the only one wounded. Colonel Patty O'Rourke and General Stephen Weed were the only high-ranking officers in Weed's brigade that were killed. At around 6 p.m., significant fighting at Little Round Top had finished. Skirmishing would continue through the evening, but by that time, the action had shifted to the northwest. Thus, one of the more dramatic moments of the Battle of Gettysburg was over. But just how important was the fight on Little Round Top? I suppose it's a matter of interpretation. While the hill was certainly a key position, its capture would not necessarily have doomed the Army of the Potomac for a couple of reasons. One, had the Confederates captured Little Round Top, there was not much more that they could do after that. They'd sustained significant casualties and expended copious amounts of energy. By the time the fighting had finished, all of Hood's division was engaged in combat, so there were no more reserve troops. Additionally, Little Round Top was not suitable for the placement of artillery like Cemetery Hill. 
so there was no great danger that they'd be able to get a battalion of artillery up there, at least not quickly enough to be able to bombard the federal positions to the north. This all is not to say that the Battle of Little Round Top isn't important, it certainly was, and if the Confederates had captured the position, the Army of the Potomac might have had to retreat, but I don't think it would have been destroyed. Its importance has been exaggerated maybe just a little bit, but mostly as a result of pop culture. The fate of the battle still hung in the balance, and that's where I'm going to leave off for today. Next episode we'll pick back up around 545 on the evening of July 2nd, and cover the fight for the wheat field, the peach orchard, and Cemetery Ridge. I hope everyone is able to enjoy the holidays, and I'll see you sometime after the new year. Thanks for listening, folks. My name is Joe Barton, and this has been, excuse me, History. Thank you.